When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Quinn looks around at the installation, pleased with the result of weeks of work and over a year of preparation. Standing in the center of the Whitney Museum of Art's sixth floor gallery, It seems as if she has an audience in these subjects. Many are her friends and loved ones. They watch her from their respective photographs, sometimes directly, sometimes as passive observers, but always there, aware. This is J.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Carrie Schlottman about her debut novel, Tell Me One Thing. The story takes place in New York City and rural Pennsylvania and revolves around Quinn, a photographer, and Lulu, who's a child when we first meet her. Quinn shoots a photo of nine-year-old Lulu smoking a cigarette and sitting on a trucker's lap. Quinn is appalled and wonders if she should help, but ends up moving on. The highs and lows of their lives don't intersect, but we see Quinn gaining huge respect and success while Lulu goes from one difficult situation to another. She's busted for selling drugs and hustling. She gets pregnant by a boy who gets sent to prison, and everyone wants something from her. This is a story of those decades when the AIDS epidemic was destroying gay communities. Drugs were destroying whoever they could. And those who had money were happy to spend it on increasingly expensive art. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thanks so much for inviting me. So what was your impetus for writing Tell Me One Thing? Ah, well, I originally studied art history when I was in college, and I fell in love with this photograph that's called Amanda and Her Cousin Amy. It was taken in 1990 by Mary Ellen Mark, who at the time uh, was a renowned social um, documentary photographer. She had been sent to rural North Carolina to document children in a school for troubled kids. And she met this nine-year-old Amanda, who was incredibly provocative, um, had a very challenging life. And as she was leaving town, she caught an incredibly shocking photo 
of Amanda, um, not staged, standing in a kiddie pool um, with fake nails on, full makeup, smoking a cigarette with her cousin Amy sitting in the background uh, in the water. And that photograph became very well known. Um, Mary Ellen was already quite famous when she took that photograph, but it really, um, you know, kind of also catapulted her in some of the different art worlds at the time. So when Mary Ellen passed away in 2015, NPR found the subject of that photograph, Amanda, and interviewed her. She was in her late 30s, and they asked her why she allowed herself to be photographed. And her response was that she had an incredibly challenging life and thought someone would see the photo and come and help her. So heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. Um, And you know, it, it kind of, I had heard that, you know, that was released in 2015, that interview. I didn't hear it till 2018. And I kind of heard it like right at the right moment. I was actually on a road trip myself um, in rural Pennsylvania with my husband, and we stopped for gas in this very small town. Um, and it, everything kind of clicked in my head. And I thought, I'm going to write a fictionalized, very fictionalized uh, version of that, but about an artist who takes a very provocative photograph. And instead of being an artist who was already well-known, I wanted it to be um, an artist who was kind of struggling herself and to see, you know, what would happen dynamically if that photograph launched her career. And then to also tell the story of the little girl, you know, to talk about her, you know, we don't see, we don't hear the subject's voices in this kind of work. And so I really wanted to, um, to tell that story too. And that's how it began. I didn't understand this. If someone took my picture and it became a commodity that was bought and sold, would I have any say in the matter? Like this, this story, your story happens in 1980. Can photographers still claim the images of real people without compensating them? Absolutely. So that photograph, um, the photograph that Mary Ellen took was in 1990. So, you know, not, I mean, a long time ago, not that long ago. Um, Yes. You know, they, as long as the subject gives permission to be photographed, you know, once that photograph is taken, the way it's used is really up to the photographer or up to, you know, whoever has commissioned the photograph, which is a fairly interesting, um, challenging idea. It's one of the things I, I really wanted to think about in writing the book, um, because I come from an art history background and had studied contemporary art. I've worked with artists my whole career, And I've always loved uh, photography, in particular documentary photography, but I've also watched how that kind of work has been collected by wealthy collectors, how it's been acquired into museums. And I think that that's, you know, it's, it's a very challenging idea for me. What does that mean? You know, what, does it change the nature of that photography? Does it, um, you know, what does that say about the subjects at that point when they're really, uh, you know, the control of, of why that kind of photography was, you know, originally even begun um, has kind of really fallen apart. And now it's it's in the fine arts realm instead of maybe like a social justice realm. Mm-hmm. Why is Quinn so surprised at becoming a big shot in the New York City art world? I think because it's really hard to do, you know, um, again, I've, I've worked with artists for about 20 years now, and I've worked with some incredibly talented people. And the idea of 
uh, you know, what it means to make it as an artist. There's a lot of different shades of what that means. I think that um, artists struggle and some of the most talented people I know have struggled for years, decades, and not been able to get the recognition that they really deserve for their work. And so I wanted to be authentic about that in the book, even as the photograph opens doors for Quinn, you know, success, I wanted to be really real about what success looks like every time a new door is opened, because it's not, you know, it's not kind of an overnight thing where suddenly you go from a struggling artist to becoming really well known. And and even when you're really well known as an artist, it does not mean that you're financially successful. And so I had to really think about that in the book and think about you know, what it would feel like to be Quinn, especially in the time period that I set this. So yet she takes that photograph in 1980. Um, the art market was beginning to rise in that time, which was kind of an interesting moment because the rest of the country was really, you know, falling apart financially and economically. The bottom was really falling out for people at a sort of, you know, middle-class level. And, um, and yet, you know, right alongside that, you have this rise of, of uh, commercial art galleries. And so, you know, that, there's a lot of tension between those things that I wanted to play out. And I think it's surprising when artists, for artists, when artists start to do well, especially in the moment, these kinds of moments of extreme tension. Mm-hmm. She, Quinn, always knew there was something iffy about taking that picture of little Lulu at a truck stop. And then just leaving. So she thinks about it, but why doesn't she go back? I think it's very challenging to know what to do in circumstances where you're not sure how to do something. (laughs) I think that that's a little obvious the way I've said that. But I, you know, I think for artists, there's a lot of conversation in the art world about this. Um, and, And it's been, you know, there's been public conversations about this too. What do artists owe their subjects? You know, when should artists intervene? Um, How do they intervene if they think that something's going on? I think, you know, with the circumstance I set in the book, I I wanted there to be enough question mark where maybe it was okay. Maybe it wasn't okay. You know, I I wanted um, that question mark to really be the thing that lingered. And I think that... um, you know, I think that for most artists, you know, trying to understand how they relate to to using a subject or to relate or, or to, you know, having a relationship with a subject, there's always a power dynamic there. And, I'm, you know, with Quinn, I wanted her to be the type of person, I want her to be the type of person in the book that, you know, really is thinking about this. I didn't want her to be feel callous and to kind of take the photograph, do really well off of it. I think her concern, you know, is sort of rises alongside her career rising off of this photograph and her really trying to understand what that means. And I don't think that she ever really does figure it out. And I kind of leave that question mark, you know, throughout the book um, for people to really decide themselves. But this is, you know, this is, this is a big question in, in real life, you know, about how artists, again, like what do they owe their subjects? How could they, you know, intervene in in the real world. You know, Mary Ellen Mark, who inspired this book, there were a few instances where she did intervene when she was doing this type of photography. If she thought there was sexual abuse happening, you know, she would phone the police or she would call social services. So, 
you know, it's kind of fascinating to, to think about, um, again, that sort of responsibility on the artist's behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quinn is at the truck stop that day with her childhood friend, Billy, who seems to have a drug problem. Can you say more about him? Yeah. So Billy is her lifelong friend. Um, you know, I wanted to really explore different kinds of relationships in the book as well. And, you know, with him, it's not obvious if they're, you know, initially if they're in a love relationship, they have history together. Um, they grew up together. So there's a deep intimacy there. They share this experience of being in this town where this photograph is taken and both knowing sort of immediately after they left that there was a big question mark about what was happening in this photograph. So I wanted that to kind of bring them together too. I also, you know, I needed, I wanted and needed to be able to talk about some of the cultural and societal things that were happening in the time period that I set this book. In the 1980s, you know, especially in New York City and other large cities, there were so many uh, crises happening. You had, you know, AIDS epidemic, you had drug issues. And, you know, this was something that was rampant in the artist community. So um, he's a character who, you know, allows that conversation to happen um, and then allows us to understand Quinn in different ways of how she relates to the things that he's going through. So helped, you know, helped me to build some depth of her character as well. What about Miles? Is he at fault for letting Billy rage out of control? Or is Billy, of course, responsible for his behavior and its consequences? That's such a good question. Um, I love that question about Miles because I think he's uh, he's a really important person in the book, and he, I, you know, no one has asked me about him yet, which is fascinating. So thank you. Um, I don't know. You know, I think that these are the real challenges around addiction, right? Like, who is responsible? This is another level of responsibility that plays out in the book too, because this is, you know, ultimately this book is discussing things like responsibility. But you know, is it? the enabler, you know, is it the addict? Is it the setting for both of them? I mean, Miles also has a drug addiction. So he's part of, you know, he he's part of the problem in multiple ways. Um, he also, you know, really encourages and pushes kind of this, these issues that are happening. So I, I wanted him to be that really like character that really did that, that was a constant, constant, you know, threat to Quinn and to Billy's safety and to see how that would play out throughout the storyline. Mm-hmm. What about Eric Hoffman? Is he, does he help her or only himself? Ooh, <laughs> um, I think he helps her. Uh, and it's funny that you asked that because I had to ask myself that a lot too. And I have an interesting, my own interesting feelings about gallerists in the art world um, because they are, you know, they're a necessary part of an artist's career. Um, they also can be a really challenging and gatekeepering part of an artist's career. Um, so I, with him, you know, I really wanted to think about, you know, what that relationship, you know, that's very intimate relationship between he and Quinn, because they worked together for so many years. Um, but he's obviously benefiting off of her. He's profiting off of the successes that she has. He's also, I think, emotionally propping her up sometimes, you know, I needed someone in the book that's also just someone there for her when she's going through a lot of challenges, something to bring her some reprieve from some of that and some emotional stability. 
Um, so he, you know, allowed allowed that to to work through in the in the plot and in the narrative. But he, um, and I, I wanted him to come across as someone who who is a bit of a caretaker. I think Quinn deserved a little bit of that caretaking, but no doubt about it, you know, just in the fact that he's in such a different economic situation than she is, even at, you know, the sort of the moment where the book reaches present tense, you know, he still is light years away from her financially um, because she's just one of many people that he works with. Mm-hmm. Um, as the years go by, we get to see Lulu's world now and then, and she doesn't seem to be able to catch a break the teacher and the other, the teacher lets the other kids bully her and nobody seems to offer her what she needs to grow except for Hank. What's going on there? Yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to be really realistic about what happens when you grow up in these really challenging situations without support, with multiple um, issues, insecurities, vulnerabilities, um, I, I also, you know, wanted Lulu to have some really light moments and she does have some light moments. She does catch a break here and there when it comes to love and friendship and caring about other people. But I think we have to be really realistic that if you're, you know, born into the kind of circumstance that she is born and raised in that kind of setting, it's not likely that you're going to get out. You know, it's not likely that things are going to change for you. It's it's more likely that you're going to struggle. It's more likely that you're going to repeat some of the mistakes of, you know, the generation before you. And so I had to really um, be authentic about that and really be thoughtful about um, about being realistic about what she would have experienced, even at every step of the way as we see her grow up in the book. What's Quinn's relationship with Alex and Jean? So Alex and Jean, uh, Quinn meets Alex at a nightclub in Greenwich Village, and she recognizes a sort of shared condition of there being something that he's struggling with. And as she gets to know him, um, she finds out that his his partner, Jean, uh, is HIV positive and is dying of AIDS. Um, This was a way to talk about that epidemic that everybody was facing in that time period. Um, They are a couple who, you know, love Quinn deeply. This is, again, as we think about relationships in the book, a different kind of relationship for Quinn. They're her subjects. And in some ways, I think they that sort of relationship she forms with them is maybe a little bit redemptive for the ways that she didn't help Lulu, you know, to bring attention to what Jean is going through, to exhibit photos of him and hope that that, you know, brings some awareness about how devastating what was happening uh, to that community is. Um, also Alex becomes one of her, you know, lifelong friends, which I think, um, again, when, when I think about Quinn needing, you know, kind of love and some reprieve as well in the book, I, I really wanted a character who would provide that for her. And I think when you go through these really challenging things together, um, that's what happens. You know, you kind of, you forge these lifelong friendships. Um, the two places the action takes place is the truck stop, but mostly in New York City. New York City is like a character in the book. Um, how did you research it? Did you go to a lot of bars? Did you go to a lot of <laughs> art galleries? Yes, <laughs> I did. So this was actually a really fun um 
project to research. So I, you know, I had studied art history in college, so I already had some basic understanding. And a lot of art history, contemporary art history is set in New York City just because of the fact that this is where, you know, such a major art center. So I, you know, when I went into writing the book, I thought I knew a lot about, you know, New York City art world, especially because I had studied contemporary art, you know, the 80s, 90s, etc. And um, as I dug in, I realized I didn't really know that much. You know, I like any other kind of history, you know what kind of rose to the top. So I got real, you know, nitty gritty with it. I went into the neighborhoods where the book is set. You know, I did site visits. So I would go to places where there had been galleries, where there had been bars and clubs that are no longer there. And I would stand in these, you know, in these um, alleyways and I would look at the buildings and I would look at the graffiti and I'd look at, you know, I'd smell the smells and I would think about where the sun was at a time of day. I mean, really deeply immersed in it. And then I read a lot of books. I read a lot of, you know, kind of counterculture, alternative art scene books. And then I talked to people, you know, the benefit of of working in the art world and being in New York City is that I have access to a lot of artists who were alive at that time. So I talked to so many different people which was so fun and has heard all of their own personal stories and where they hung out and what they did and who they saw. And, you know, and then how, how that related to things like, you know, that we know the cultural icons of the time, you know, and heard these fantastic stories about trying to spot famous people you know, at clubs. And, mm-hmm. and then I had to decide from there, you know, which, which art, you know, scene, because there were several types, you know, would Quinn have been part of based on who she was and who she hung out with and, you know, and deciding like what would have been the club she would go to, you know, what kind of gallery would she have wanted to show in? Where would her work have been first seen? Um, So that was really fun. So interesting. Okay. When I come to New York, I want to go on on the Carrie Shotman tour. Yes. Oh my gosh. Now you're making me think I should do this. Like, yeah, this walking oh. book tour. <laughs> I love a book it. Tour. And then you stop in places that actually have a drink. Yes. <laughs> the way, the way Quinn did. Okay. I'm, I'm there. All right. Um, so what are you working on next? So I just completed a new manuscript. Um, I'm calling it American Dreams. We'll see if it retains that title. I, it's about, so I grew up in Southeast Detroit, um, and it ha- happens to be one of those areas where um, a lot of the people who um, raided the Michigan Capitol in spring of 2020 came from, and also who were part of the insurrection on January 6th. And so I have written a book that's it's kind of about the intensity leading up to the 2020 election um, of things when I went back home during that time frame, things I was experiencing in that community, and then kind of coming back to New York and seeing just a, such a different culture shock of the way people were thinking about things. So, you know, with with all of my work, I really want people to try to understand each other a little bit better because we have a lot of, uh, we, we just need to come to come to understand each other a little bit better, I think, in this country. And I really worry sometimes about, you know, the way we're getting further divided. So so American Dreams is telling a story about um, a group of small town folks who are very unhappy about the upcoming election, who are protesting it, who are plotting what they'll do if the results don't come back as they'd like. And then it's also about a story of, you know, just sort of this 20-year-olds of this area just trying to live their lives, you know, just trying to do things. They're struggling to have economic challenges. It's the first book I've ever written that's actually set where I grew up, and it was 
inspired again by something that really happened, which is that um, one of the members of my mom's church was one of the folks who was part of the insurrection. So, you know, it really hit home as a story. And I thought we need to, you know, I need to write something where people can understand why people are making these kinds of decisions, not to condone it, but to hopefully shed some light on, you know, maybe a shared condition. So it's been a really exciting, also challenging book to write because I don't want to be um, I don't want to condone the behavior. I want to explain the cultural circumstances by which it can grow and breed. Wow. Can't wait to hear what happens in the end of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Carrie Schlotman. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining me. Again, I'm G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series, and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking to Carrie Schlotman, author of Tell Me One Thing. Hope you have a good book to cuddle up with today and every day. Happy reading! <laughs> <laughs>